Hello, and welcome to episode 143 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I am your host, Derek Eamsbergen. I am Embryonics on Twitter, and today I am joined by Caitlin. Why does Telos have glasses, Argeros? Sorry, Argeros, that's your name. So bad. Not not the pronunciation, Telos. I don't, it doesn't make any sense. So. Yeah, well, she has to be Moe now, Caitlin. That's just the way of the world. And she has to have a butt shot where you can see her butt cheeks because her skirt is so short. Yeah. Accept it, Caitlin. Accept it. Sounds like 2018. That's about, uh, that's about right. That's We're good. also joined by Mike Eldorado Solosi. Hi, I'm Mike. I am at The Real Monsoon on Twitter, and uh, I have spent a lot of time in Eldorado the past 10 days or so. It's true. Excellent. Oh, and I, I, I'm at, uh, at Leanne underscore Cazero. I forgot to include that. Sorry. Yes, you are. No worries. And we're also joined by our newest panelist, Greg Ditto That Delmage. <laughs> uh, hi, my name's Greg Delmage. I'm going to talk about Ditto stuff. You can find me at Twitter at Greg Delmage. Wow, that's handy. Sure is. It's the, the actor's <laughs> moniker. Find my real name and support me, please. Yeah, now I don't have to like look for, uh, you know, at underscore Vancouver Beast XX <laughs> underscore that- uh, that's a bit of a problem. I shared that just with you. Gosh, Derek. There is an at Mike Solosi on Twitter, but he is someone who is very vocal about political beliefs that are the opposite of mine. So I'm a little annoyed by that. Oh, yeah. he's terrible. We don't like him. No, no, no. I, I'm not a big fan of that other Mike Solosi. Or is he like your living Steve Colbert uh, uh, alternate? Yes. That's your alternate personality. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Well, um, on today's episode of Random Encounter, we're going to be discussing the best in the seafood selection from the Chesapeake Bay. Um, what is it, what's your selection today, Mike? Is it oysters? No, the, I haven't had oysters recently, but it, let's see. Um, uh, you want a good Chesapeake Bay food around the D.C. area? I would recommend going to a place that serves blue lump crab as a catch of the day, served with Old Bay and Remoulade. That's the way to go. Okay, cool. So we're done talking about that now. And yep, uh, got it. <laughs> no, we shortest we episode that. ever. Yeah, it's over. Thanks for joining us today on Random Encounter. No, <laughs> Go eat blue crab. Um, Thanks. Good night. We, we actually have crabs. crabs are good. We have so many games to talk about today. I'm not sure we can jam pack it all in one episode, but we're sure as hell going to try because that's what we do here at Random Encounter. We aim to impress, please, all of the above. So last time we opened the episode, speaking a little bit about God of War. And that was just pre-release. So we were sharing some kind of like earlier thoughts about the game overall conceptually and what maybe legacy it might leave and all that kind of stuff. So now the game is out. We've had a chance to play it. I uh, I marathoned it over the course of a weekend. I beat the entire thing in probably like, I don't know, 16 to 18 hours. I got it on a Friday. I was done with it Monday morning. And I know, Solosi, you've been playing it as well, yes? You call me yes. Um, I have not been able to marathon it. I've been distracted by Monster Hunter and various other things, uh, including not some non-gaming related things. But I'm about six or seven hours in, and I definitely want to continue it and finish it. I, I have been enjoying it very much so far. Yeah, I think it's a really fun game. And it seems like what I said last episode about the whole Resident Evil 4 comparison of me not knowing if I wanted to play it then getting engaged with it and then feeling like really into the sort of tactile moment to moment action of it. I get the same kind of feeling from this God of War. Um, the, the combat design I think is what draws me to it the most because it's funny because I felt like earlier God of War titles, while certainly not bereft of strategy, tended to sort of allow you to button mash. Like the entire gimmick with Kratos having the, the blades was you could just sort of do these wide reaching AOE attacks and slash everything to death and, 
there again you had to employ some strategy but like it's an action game first and foremost so this one the newest god of war leans more heavily on its rpg sort of functions and systems and i feel like the sort of core combat design around the leviathan axe is his weapon that you start the game with is kind of like a more on one-on-one type of combat style like you're more focused on throwing the axe at a single enemy at a time and you have to be able to manage several enemies at once anyway and some of his attacks are aoe but i do feel like the game encourages you to focus on each enemy in turn and sort of figure out what do i want to do to attack that enemy like how can I best take it down given my surroundings and given my skill set that I have available to me? Um, so I wouldn't say that it's like a, a game that necessitates complex tactical thought all the time, but more so than the previous ones, I do think it does skew a little bit more like action RPG in its combat. Um, and that's I, interesting, yeah. I'd basically agree. Uh, the... the uh... The AOE attacks that you learn in the new God of War are limited, and a lot of them are sort of player choice. You'll either find them in runic attacks that you find in treasure chests, or maybe um, attacks that are pretty far down the skill tree. But in, in general, it's uh, like managing the crowd that you're dealing with and not getting surrounded, and um, and picking them off in like the most advantageous order is really important. And I'll use you, and I usually equip some kind of some uh, some kind of ice area effect attack for as my runic attack and use it as kind of a GTFO button. Hmm. Uh, um, and but uh, basically every enemy has uh, it ha- has their own quirks and you have to use you have to use uh, both your range attacks and area effect attacks and your uh, and your boys arrows to take to take them down. It's it's definitely more tactical and more thought-provoking than um than in the older games where i mean it, it's a little unfair to say that they were button total button mashy but it, it is kind of a just just you know a just a big spinny ballet with circ with a uh, square and triangle until you get mm-hmm. the the button that lets you the, the light over them that lets you press circle for a finisher finishing move and uh, i think in the older god of war games you really only had to care about the specificity of those attacks for the high level challenges where for this i i, th- I think that there's um you know, tactical combat and more life-threatening situations earlier in the game mm-hmm. in the new one. Because I, I, I died in some earlier encounters, and I'm, and I'm on the normal difficulty setting. Yeah, I died some during the game, too. I think I honestly felt like most of the game was pretty fair uh, in terms of difficulty. There was There's one section towards the end that uh, I won't give you any details about, but it, it frustrated me because it was just sort of like waves of powerful enemies, and they had cheap attacks that I didn't like, but... Even the final boss of the game, I not a spoiler, but I didn't realize it was the final boss. And oh. it, and it was over and you know, I was kind of continuing and I expected more to happen, but it didn't. And the game still ended, I think, with, you know, sufficient finality considering they, they said they want to make this into a new trilogy. So this is number one of three in the new God of War trilogy, from what we've heard. So yeah, I thought it ended, you know, I was satisfied with how it ended, but uh yeah, it sure it sure felt like that wasn't the final boss, which is kind of amusing. Um, so I guess that speaks to the encounter. That particular encounter felt very fair to me, and I didn't struggle with it to a degree where I was like, "Oh God, this is the last boss! Like, f this fight! I just want to be over, or I want to be finished with the game." But um, I actually enjoyed it for what it was, and I felt like it was pretty diverse. So the combat's, uh, I think, a high point of the game, and I really appreciate the, the nuance that went into making it feel more like. You know, like more than just a mindless uh, button smasher, which, as you said, Solosi, the first games weren't necessarily just that, but I think this one is more mindful. 
Yeah, um, they, 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 there's more tactics and thought into regular encounters in this one, def, by far. Yeah, the, and the game the is ones. super gorgeous. The environments in this game are the kind that you just kind of want to stop and look at for a while, especially when you get into, again, I, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but there are some, like, you know, more otherworldly locations than what you just saw in the very beginning footage of this when like pre-release when they just showed kind of snowy environments and stuff. There is of course much more than that. And I think that the kind of supernatural beauty of some of these places shines through and they, they are, did they already add that photo mode or is that coming soon? I think it was in one of the updates this week. It was, I didn't play God of War a lot this week. I mostly played it last week and over the weekend, but um, I, there was like a new update something like three out of five days so i think one of them was photo mode okay so it, yeah. it's probably already in there yeah so it is the kind of game that i'm glad has a photo mode since there are so many pretty spots where i would love to get screenshots of even to just use as like backgrounds for uh my computer's wallpaper uh just the environment shots alone i don't need any characters in them or anything but <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that we're getting photo mode most of the time when i played uncharted 4 i think i liked the photo mo mode better than the firefights for the most part <laughs> hey we're getting a photo mode in dragon quest 11 which i definitely want so yes please yep that's gonna be snazzy yeah so oh by the way have you guys seen even the i know caitlin and greg haven't played god of war yet have you seen the the memes coming out of this surrounding boy Boy, oh, I, yes. I, I enjoy many of the fake conversations people are coming up with. It's yeah. it, it's great. <laughs> well, there was that uh, even that um, comic from Penny Arcade a few days back about how like the boy would never behave that way. Boy, shoot that thing! Ugh, my dad wants me to do something, and he's like talking to like some sort of his like ancient runic tablet in his hand to a friend. Uh. It's glowing. It's <laughs> just like I can't. My dad wants me right now. <laughs> it's just like Sorry, they would guys. they would never behave that way. It's so unrealistic. They wouldn't yeah. listen like that. <laughs> Yeah, for real. Also, for that fact that brings that that brings me to a question I have. How is uh, Atreus? Mm -hmm. uh, Atreus, yeah. Atreus. How how is he as a character? Is he? Do you like him, or is he kind of that tropey, annoying, you know, weak boy, he, protected kind of guy? He um, can be annoying, but kids can be annoying. Like they can be willful accurate. and and uh, see. Greg would know. See, this is why Greg is here. Give us that keen insight on being a dad. But yeah, I mean, so Losi's uh, earlier in the game than I am. So I guess you probably haven't gotten to see the his total arc over the course of the game. But um, I have not yet, correct. Yeah, I mean, he's a kid. He's a kid being raised under some really unique and pressing circumstances. And Kratos isn't exactly like a soft guy. So he's really hard on Atreus. And a lot of the time it feels like I mean, it feels like he's being too hard a lot of the time, but that's just who Kratos is, I guess. And you see the kid sort of... I, I almost get like a um, military brat kind of vibe. Like, you can imagine the sort of environment he's being raised in is the same as people who are uh, in strict like, military families where they have to constantly yeah. respond with yes, sir, no, sir. So that, I mean, that being said, I feel like he shows, he shows growth over the course of the game, and he's not like an annoying brat all the time he's generally pretty uh enjoyable he is a kid character so i think that he's pretty authentically a kid character he has tantrums and stuff but mm -hmm. um all part of well, to, to speak to that and again how um like rob brought up this fact the whole idea of like the dad game and uh, we're reading some stuff about the director and why he kind of wanted to make this shift into getting away from like the toxic masculinity and the hyper violence in a lot of ways even though some of it's still there depending on your point of view 
Um, but just the fact that, yeah, having kids and wanting to teach his kid not to be human garbage uh, kind of is what inspired this whole idea. And also to bring out the fact that, as I've learned uh, a lot as a father too now, that um, kids have a lot to teach you. How much does the game speak to that? How much... You're asking me how much the game speaks to that? Yeah, like, does Atreus... Uh, oh, yeah. Is there any growth moments where Kratos goes like, huh, didn't think of it that way because oh, of you yep. just brought mm, me yeah. this to me? Yep, very much so. Um, and I think they they balance each other a bit. And, and Atreus, I think, is responsible for some of Kratos' humanization in this game. Mm. Because... This is where I've really been actually nervous about having this discussion because I was talking to Robert Steinman. You may remember him. I mean, who is that again? Who? Rob who? Uh, oh, Pale Robbie on the boards. Yeah, that guy. So I was talking to him about the game. And for Rob, it sounds like, I don't want to put any words in his mouth, but if I remember correctly, he was just saying that he feels like the game, sort of the, the evolution of God of War as a franchise into this runs parallel with his own growth as a person and sort of the kind of games that he's partaking in or um, the messages that he's receiving. So like we went from this hyper-violence into a little bit more of a reflective kind of story. So that I 100% appreciate. And I think that that completely comes through in the game. Now, the reason why I'm hesitant to talk about it is because I don't want to be over here being like, you know, super Debbie Downer or Mr. Like always have to be contrary. But I just think uh, this is an instance in which a story doesn't resonate with me personally, because I'm, I'm not in those circumstances. And no. I, I don't think I ever will be. I mean, like, I'm not counting out the fact that I may, I may want to have a kid someday, like I might, but I'm just not sort of, that's not how my life has run. And it's, it's not something that I identify with personally. So like, no plans to fight uh, gods? Well, not just that, but the whole, like, you know, <laughs> I didn't, again, I, I don't want this to sound like me being up my own butt, but, like, I wasn't into hyper-violent stuff when I was a teenager. Like, we all have our teenage angst and stuff, but, like, you know, I've brought this up before, but, like, I'm a gay man, and I've always been a little bit more in tune with, like, the, I, I'm, like, I'm sensitive, I guess, and I'm, kind of a softer guy, whatever, however you want to say that. So like, this has never been something that's resonant with me. And so when I see the story being pointed at people like Rob and Rob's shoes, um, it feels like so heavy handed to me that I feel like it's pandering for money because huh. I, I don't, again, it's, it's hard for me to speak about this because it's not, it's not the position that I'm coming from. So like when I see this, it's kind of, it, it feels like, masturbatory and it's whole like oh we're so reflective because we're better people now and i realize that mm. that's a very cynical view to take but that's sort of what i got out of it is that i don't feel like kratos is a compelling character and this game tried really hard to push for the like but he's he's redeemed now he's sorry for what he did and i i kind of think that's bs like i mm, i i i don't want to use the word redeem for this and uh and I'm coming at this from a different perspective than you, Derek, I guess, because I, I mean, I played the first game when I was 19 and now I'm 32. So mm -hmm. like I, I, part of me enjoyed the hyper violence and the spectacle of the early God of war games. And I, and I played five of the six old ones and I, and I mostly liked them, but this new one, I, I don't think Kratos's arc is redemptive. I think it's, I feel like it's more of these circumstances are being thrust upon him. He's he doesn't feel like he wants to right 
the wrongs of his past so much as he wants to be left alone. Uh, he he leaves his home because uh, this is spoilers for the first thirty minutes, I guess, um, because he wants uh, his wife's last wish or his new wife's last wish was to have her uh, ashes taken to the top of a certain mountain. And that's why he leaves uh, where he and, and his new wife raised their son. Uh, I, I think that the, most of this adventure is things happening to him when he would rather be left alone. And his rage for, of the, from the old games has been replaced with some grumpiness and also some desire to have Atreus not grow up to be the kind of rage monster he was in Greece. Yeah. No, but I, I but I don't I feel that. it's redemptive so much as as like put in context and and they're they're acknowledging that the old games did happen like the, the this is true it's, yeah. the, the canon isn't being erased and it's but he I think it's less they they definitely want to sense to have less hyper violence in this new trilogy I'm assuming it's going to be the full trilogy because it's been pretty this first one seems pretty successful at least but I, I think it's be less about hyper violence and more about um. I, I don't know. Like I don't. I don't think this is a new sensitive Kratos. I think this is a basically the same Kratos who wants the past put behind him, but not in a redemptive way. More in a you know like resistant way. Okay, I can. But, I can appreciate that. I, I think um, part of my pushback comes from the fact that this game has received almost unanimous critical acclaim. Like it's getting ten out of tens. It's getting you know ninety nines, ninety fives, and I totally agree that this is a great game and I'm not here to argue that it is deficient in terms of like, you know, gameplay mechanics or world design or anything like that. Um, I just feel like a lot of the praise that I have heard for it is saying that again, this is, you know, uh, a story that every human being should experience or like, this is one of the most revolutionary stories ever told in a video game. And I think that's <laughs> bullshit, honestly. Yeah, the, 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 the early... Before. The early critical wave for it was, you know, so pra- like hyperbolic and praise that it, it felt ridiculous. Right, and so, what and what I read from that, and the reason why it kind of chafes against me is because I think that this game is kind of indulging its now grown audience in like another power fantasy, but from a different perspective. Like, there's a value shift from I'm an angry person and I just want to rage to. Uh, I'm reflecting upon that rage. And like you said, Solosi, I'm, maybe yeah, I'm probably I'm probably in that target audience. Well, yeah, and maybe it's not like re- redemptive. Maybe, you know, maybe I'm misunderstanding or maybe, I don't know. But maybe it's not redemptive so much as it is just like accepting of the past. But I still see it as power fantasy because if that is the core message of the game, it still clashes mechanically in some ways because you still have things like instant kills where you press R3 and the game is incentivizing you to use these mechanics to instant kill enemies. And he does things like rip them in half or like yep. there's one where he rips something's jaw like all the way down its body and throws it. And like, yeah, all they did was change it from circle to R3. It's it's like the the, no. the brutality of the action and how gratuitous it is at times hasn't really changed. Yes. So I'm seeing that as like, so the game is telling me one thing with its theme and telling me something else with its gameplay. And the counter argument I've heard to that that I want to at least you know bring up is that some people are. I had one friend talk to me about this, saying, "Well, those you have to look at it like those are demons and actual threats to his uh, safety or maybe the safety of his son. Like many times they attack him first, or they're like angry gods. So the only people that you're killing who are maybe human are like the god, the godlike people. So I, I can appreciate the idea of like defending your family from a threat." But it still feels like 
I don't know. Like, there's a difference to me between like killing the enemy by you know throwing your axe at it or whatever, and then like, or there's a difference between that and then like slashing something in the face, cutting its face in half, and then like ripping it apart. You know what I mean? It just feels like it, that's that's more true to Kratos's character and past, but I still see it as a clash between theme and gameplay. And I'm not saying that this game is trash. This I think this game is excellent, but I think that the really hyperbolic nature of the praise for it at launch really like rubbed me the wrong way. And I, I think that people are giving it too much credit for telling a story that I don't think is as deep as I think it is. Yeah. It, I mean, I mean, you, you said the words power fantasy before, and I think this is still the same God of war power fantasy. You're a demigod, but in the older games, it was mostly just, you know, brutally destroying those who had wronged you with uh, this, you know, with Kratos just being a one note rage monster. And now it's you and, now it's uh, you have the strength of a demigod, but you're using it to protect and uh, and to you know protect these awful things that are ha- ha- happening to you and these gods that are trying to kill you. So it's I, I think they they just shift the direction of of like of what the motivation is for the character, but it's still the same power fantasy and still the same super uh, you know god on god violence. So it's um I I, I think I uh. I have probably fewer issues with the tone of this game than you, Derek. Maybe I just haven't uh, played long enough yet because I, I, again, I'm only about six hours in. But yeah. I, I, uh, I am more, I am at least accepting of this tone and of this version of Kratos, and I, I think I like it more than the old Kratos, which was, you know, not why I enjoyed those old yeah. games. But uh, I mean, so far, it's an excellent character action game. I, I, it's probably not worthy of 10 in the 10 out of 10 across the board because i don't i don't know if anything is but uh i'm i'm really enjoying this game if you like character action games or you know action rpgs that have you know a, a wide wealth of mechanics i, I think this is a hundred percent worth checking out yeah i think it's very very good and i just want to reiterate that i'm not trying to be a smug jerk here and be like no i have the superior <laughs> position because i think blah 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 i just i think it's a, a instance of me needing to accept that this isn't oriented at me and that's okay. But I still, you know, wanted to voice how I felt about uh, the game's themes and stuff, but still great game. So not looking forward to hunting down Ravens. Can we have some more mom games though? Like seriously? Yeah. I was going to say like, how did this all speak to you as a, uh, on your, from your perspective? Who? Well, I mean, like I haven't, I haven't played it. So have you, well, I mean, have you played any of like the past ones? Like, uh, you, are you in that angsty audience or no? <laughs> I am. I would not consider myself in that angsty audience. I mean, I like the previous. Uh, okay, l- let me rephrase that. I like God of War one and two. I really did not like God of War three. It turned me off the, the series entirely, and I didn't touch Ascension as a result. Um, I played the PSP games too, or most of them. I think I didn't get through the second one all the way. Um, the first one's better, so yeah, you weren't missing a lot. Yeah. Uh I mean like I I liked the games but it wasn't because it was super violent. I wasn't drawn to them because of the the extreme violence. It was just a really well put together cinematic action game. And part of me was interested in it because I'm Greek American, so you know, I grew up on Greek mythology and it was kind of cool to see that uh this sort of, you know, different take on the greek gods and myths and whatnot um that was a big draw for me and of course by the time we got to god of war 3 
it just wasn't doing it for me anymore. I think God of War three was in some respects more hyper gratuitous with its violence than the previous games, if that's even possible, but mm. I just kind of reached maybe, maybe too, it was that it didn't bother me as much when I was younger playing the first two games. And as I got older, it became less acceptable to just have violence for violence's sake for like, you know, blood guts, gotta, gotta get, you know, the blood pumping kind of thing there. Um, so, I mean, on the one hand, you know, it wouldn't be a God of War game if it didn't have hyper violence, gratuitous violence. I mean, they can do what they can to tone it down, but I think that they they know that they would lose people if they really tried to redirect the direct the the the, uh, the the sort of the the experience of the game. It's what I'm interested in when I get around to playing it. It's just to see how they try to actually have a decent story in there and with actual character arcs and they try to have Kratos have a little bit of, of, uh, of growth or pathos or anything because it really did not come off that way in the previous games. It was, it was, it was kind of, I think pretentious how we were supposed to, you know, be on Kratos's side. It was like a Walter White situation. He's an asshole. He is a bad guy, but you root for him because he's badass. but, all of his motivations are crap and you're not really supposed to be in favor of what he's doing. And if they manage to turn it even a little bit around so that you can see where Kratos is coming from and maybe slightly root for him, even though he's a bad guy who's done lots of bad things in the past and he really shouldn't have a happy ending or even, you know, remotely kind of in that direction, that would be an improvement. It it would make the hyperviolence feel like, that still sucks, but at least there's something redeeming within all of that hyperviolence. Um, but I will say this has like been the the theme, the meme lately is dad games. We've seen a lot of games where it's about a father and son doing stuff. And I mean, that's cool. It's great to have that experience. It's great to have male characters that are presented as being more than just rage monsters for rage's sake to have that sort of familial connection and have that sort of softness to them. But I'd like to see some mom games. Okay. <laughs> I got a little sum for you. It's called Grandia three. And that stops being a mom game I about know, like I a quarter know. of the way in. I know, Although the, such Mar- a disappointment, right? but Miranda is an a plus video game mom. She's Miranda's a great awesome. One. Yeah. It just speaks to the the industry as a whole. I mean, well, <laughs> the global industry as a whole, and just yeah, how dominated it is by cis white male culture in so many ways. That that is those messages are there, and it's great that they're getting more uh, acceptable in a sense, or not acceptable. It's probably the wrong word, but just um, more approachable, I guess. As Kaylin said, not everyone wants to be a crazy rage monster anymore, and they want to portray these nicer people. But it's they still they still lack a voice for certain angles, which is why we look to more indie developers to find these smaller voices. Probably, they're not just trying to tick boxes and appeal to the grander consumer market that as they believe it is. Yeah, speaking of dad games, well, I assume this is a dad game. I don't really know anything about it, but I just saw an announcement for a game called Eastward a couple of days ago. Oh yeah, it looks so good. Yeah, being published by Chucklefish, who published uh, Stardew Valley. And it's being developed by a Chinese indie developer. I want to think. I want to say they're called like Pixil with an I, P I X I L, or Pixiv or something, or that maybe that's the image site. But it's a 
like Earthbound sort of inspired, seems like an action RPG kind of top down more or less. It's fairly similar to Earthbound style, but it's uh, it's also inspired by '90s anime, and the two primary characters look like a father and daughter, as far as I can tell. But the father uses like a frying pan to fight. <laughs> So it looks really, really cool. Eastward, look it up if you're looking for maybe question mark another dad game. Maybe they're brother and sister. I don't actually know, but it certainly seems more like a father daughter. I mean, the the best father and son game ever made is Dragon Quest V. So people should oh, play that. Man, mm. yes. Is there is there any other mom games that you can think of aside from Grandia though? Uh, I mean, I've been I've been trying, and I can't really think of very many. Technically, Fallout Four, if you play as a female character you're a mom but like it's not the identity of the character as being a mom because you can play as a guy so yeah that's fair yeah and yeah the, the, the mom conversation isn't the core part of the character growth it's just yeah that's yeah. fair don't don't mind me i'm just the token feminist making the token feminist argument so. you're totally allowed to though it's, it's Get definitely something no not allowed I would, uh, I would suggest a handful of Fire Emblem games, but they, those aren't very feminist at all. No. Will we get a dream mommy, do you think? Oh, that could Same be premise, but we're Yeah, working. they'd have to do some work, uh, I think, on that one. But <laughs> maybe a different core writer or consultant. Uh, yes. Yeah, and they have, sure. they'd have to pick a different word to make it alliterative, of course. Yeah. Uh, master, I know. No, not master mommy. That's different. <laughs> That's different. Oh gosh. All right. Mistress Mommy. Wait a minute. Yeah. Well this <laughs> it, mommy and then Mistress Yeah, okay. Segway. Segway. So Mysterious so, Mommy. Ooh. Sure. Yeah. Mysterious Mommy. You're you're you hired. Like a mysterious Mommy, Caitlin, if you if you really wanted to. The irony is I don't want to be a mom. I don't want kids. Yeah. But just mom games. Yeah, I mean I just like it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's nice to see strong female characters, but it's also important to see strong female characters interacting with strong female characters, which is part of the reason why I like Horizon so much, yeah. because Aloy's a great female two, character. You need two but, women to pass the Bechdel test. Yeah, but she also meets with a lot of other strong female characters, and it's just, you know, that's it's nice. And I feel like it's, in general, I see, I like the, sort of the family orient. well, the stories that involve family members because that's kind of an interesting angle uh doesn't i feel get the spotlight in games at least over the course of the past 30 years i've been playing family is always sort of on the peripheral like it's the backstory of the character or it's a side character it's mm-hmm. it's i like the trend of bringing familial relationships yeah familial relationships closer to the foreground but i mean the trend is dad games father and son father and daughter and i love last of us i'd love last of us but you know just let's you know moms are characters too yeah and i think this is uh i think greg was saying and we've i think we've all brought it up before is that this trend is part of this growing demographic this shift from the same people who were playing games 15 years ago and the kind of people they've grown into today which is largely you know cis cis male yeah fathers so yeah, so it's, I mean, it's cool. I want to see more diversity in games. And I think that God of War, the new one, is uh, like you were getting on earlier, Caitlin. I do think that this game works to sort of make some headway on Kratos not just being a total one-dimensional character. But um, yeah, this is an instance in which I've, I've 
just got to stick to my guns and say that it, maybe it's not for me and it doesn't resonate with me and that's okay. So um, what does resonate with some of us is killing monsters in perhaps less gratuitous ways, but still violent nonetheless. So Woo. in Monster Hunter World, they recently introduced the game's first, or what are they calling it, a raid or? They're calling it siege mode. Siege, is, okay. Is because, um, all right, uh, uh, okay, full disclosure, this is a special uh limited time event it's um going on for a total of two weeks it ends on may 3rd and uh they're calling it a siege mode where a giant new elder dragon uh new to this game hasn't appeared in in another monster in another monster hunter before it's called kulve teroth where basically it's sort of burrowing in this new zone called the cavern of el dorado and up to 16 players can fight it at once. And based on the number of, and it, they do so in, in squads of up to four people each. And it's like, and, and basically the, the squads are trying to deal as much damage to the Kulve Taroth as they can. And, uh, but it's progress and how, um, and how many rewards you get and what parts of it are broken are determined not by only your squad, but by all of the squads fighting it at once. So it's, it's, t- it's sort of, similar to a normal four man hunt against a giant monster, kind of like a Lao Shan Lung hunt and, or a, uh, uh, in, in the older games or even a Zora Magdros hunt in the recent games, but it's a little, it's, it's more dangerous and a little bit more connected to everyone that is in your instance at that time, or you're mm-hmm. in, more accurately in your, uh, you know, in, in your gathering hall, because it's a, it's a maximum 16 players to a game room in monster hunter world, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a big cool monster that is shiny and gold. And like, there's over 20 parts of it that can break off. And even if you fail the hunt, you can probably um, collect a bunch of parts because parts are always falling off it at all times. Yeah. And it's got a different progression system, right? Like you have to complete certain objectives. Yeah, it's a it's a four stage fight where you have to deal enough damage, to, or or all of the groups fighting it at once have to deal enough damage of to it at certain points for it to, like you know, break the wall of the cavern to enter a new part of the of the stage, and uh, and by the end of the stage, all of its armor is off. It's it's faster and dealing more damage, but taking more damage as well, and you have to kill it before it leave before it uh, leaves the stage. It's a, it's an elder dragon, so you can't capture it, but it is a big cool gold horned elder dragon that can uh deal a a ton of fire damage at once so bring a fireproof mantle if you've unlocked that thing yeah well you like you said you can't capture it but you can capture crucially a lot of cool little gold variants of existing uh smaller wildlife things because in monster hunter world yeah you can can decorate your private room by capturing animals in the wild (laughs) and then assigning them to different little slots so you get like a fish pond that you can put fish in and you'll have like lizards and bugs crawling on your pillars and a rabbit in front of your fireplace and stuff. So this new uh, siege has golden, like they just look different, but they're the same. Yep. um, Yeah. yeah, Those small animals are called endemic animals or endemic life. And, uh, and you can do things like, like capture birds and fish and have them uh, hang out in your terrarium and aquarium in your house. And this new zone does have gold versions of a lot of regular endemic life. And and also the armor and weapons from the Kulve Taroth look really really good and seem strong, but I've only I've only unlocked a few armor pieces. I still have some hunting to do. Okay, yeah, and those are those are different looking as well, right? They're gold variants. Uh, no, they're not gold variants. They're it's it's brand new armor and weapons. It's a oh, whole okay. a whole new a whole new set, I should say. And um, 
you know, me being who I am, I'll definitely want to make the hammer and long sword and, and probably also at least one bow gun. Cool. Yeah. My uh, partner, Jeremy has been going really hard on that. And I've, I've seen him run through this, like, I don't know, five, six, seven times. And he's trying to collect every insect glaive in the game. And he has like all but two at this point. Oh, wow. Nice. He's happy to insect glaive is what I ran with. So yeah, that's I'll a really cool weapon. To that. it's, it's really fun to watch somebody play with insect glaive too. Cause they're just flipping all over the place. Like, a great yeah, it's, it's, it's probably the most aerial weapon in the game. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, weird technical parts to managing your bug. And then there's a lot of very fun uh, airborne flippy shit going on. Yep. Yeah, cool. it's a very it's, neat thing. I was hoping this thing would look a lot more like Goldar than it does, but it's it's got a striking resemblance. I just heard giant gold thing and went to Power Rangers. Sorry. Oh, that okay. Goldar. Oh, you mean Graforzar? I see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about Power Rangers? Anything? So let's see. We absolutely should not. You should cut this from the podcast. In fact, yeah, because you're gonna you're gonna go on a tangent. Um, I'm Say that Sentai Encounter. Mm-hmm. Yes, Sentai Encounter, which we'll record right after um, Chesapeake Bay Encounter. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, carrying on. Sorry. Cool. Yeah. So uh, it's nice that they're continuing to add different content to Monster Hunter World, and uh, maybe we'll get another event like this, another siege in the future with a different type of monster, a different type of objectives, that kind of thing. It's uh, very yeah. mean. It keeps it going, that's for sure. Yeah, we def- I think we talked about this in an earlier episode, how Monster Hunter World has a pretty encouraging setup for its DLC where all of the monster DLC and quest DLC is free. And uh, and, and and also there's some free cosmetic DLC. The uh, one Another uh, Monster Hunter World event going on right now is... Um, uh, Featuring Dante from Def- the Devil May Cry series. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, you can do a, some... I think there's some Odogaron hunts to get Dante armor and a Dante charge blade, which looks like the Force Edge from Devil May Cry 1. Yeah. And the armor's kind of hard to assemble because you need high-level plates and gems from five or six monsters. But it's uh, uh, it looks cool, and even though I don't, I'm not a charge blade user, I'll probably make that sword anyway. Does it come with a pizza box as, like, a shield? Don't think so, because... Um, yeah, no, Force Edge is DMC one, and the and the pizza, the slow motion pizza eating is mostly DMC three opening. Okay. Unless I, maybe it's maybe maybe I just haven't played DMC one in fifteen well, I think years. He's always like pizza, right? But then the the part with him running. Well, no, I'm thinking about the part with him running through the trailer. That's like D lowercase M uppercase C. Okay, maybe there's pizza in DMC one, and I just forgot. But I <laughs> I, I I more vividly remember the pizza in DMC three. Okay, well, he's the spiritual successor to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> but, they, but, they, but yeah, they've been doing a lot of cool DLC stuff. Like there was a uh, a weapon design contest that ran in December January, and the winning weapon from that contest was available as a event DLC. I want to say two weeks ag- two weeks ago. Yeah. So it's there about. But it's, it's in the spring uh, festival. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yeah, like first week of April. Um. So. Yeah, they're they're really making good in a lot of these promises, and uh, it's kind of amazing. Just a month after the Devil Joe new monster, they introduced yet another new monster for uh, for for free, and um, the community is really excited about it. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know when I'm going to stop playing this damn thing. You won't yeah, until I, it's dead. Probably not. I tried I mean, to get in and get my Mega Man armor uh, for my Palico, but I was a day shy getting back to it, so I'll have to wait till it inevitably. <laughs> I made, hopefully, I comes made back. 
I made that nice. one. And I, I think they're going to bring things back because the, yeah. uh, the Spring Festival like un- re-unlocked all of the limited time events from the entire run of the game. So I think there's probably going to be more events like that where they bring back old... It'll be like a Summer quests. Solstice Festival and a yeah. Winter Festival or something. Or, or yeah, exactly. Or- yeah, they could do more uh, large-scale hunts like the Kolvei Taroth Siege, but for different monsters, or just have it bring back, have it come back at different times. It feels almost weird that this is a this that the Kolvei Taroth is only going to be around for two weeks. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. It's going to give them, yeah, probably some long-term payoff to like bring it back to keep people wanting to check in, mm-hmm. uh, as any of these kind of games do, because it hits, I guess, a little bit of that gotcha vibe of the oh, it's well, super limited time, get it now, you know. A, a little bit, but also you don't have to pay, unlike Gacha no. or unlike or unlike games as a service things with a lot of uh, with a lot of expansions like Destiny. It's and they, they just want people to keep playing because the more yeah. people keep playing, the more likely they are to spend money on it or or buy the next game. So I exactly. I, I um I, I'm curious if uh, either in the second phase of Monster Hunter World or if it in its next sequel, if there's going to be more paid content or about the same amount of paid content. Because but they they got to look at some spreadsheets and uh, and look at some numbers before we know anything about that. Yeah, because it definitely doesn't feel like um an expansion game that's going to get like uh, another like whole story arc within its thing since the story is not the primary it's mostly just going to be like new stuff to kill and get new shiny things that's right. usually how monster hunter works but i'm not yeah. uh, i'm not sure if they're going to have a monster hunter world g version or if it's going to be a downloadable expansion or i i don't know i'm, I'm excited to find out though because they definitely have their hooks in me i mean good god i i might be hitting the 200 hour mark on this thing well i didn't talk that's about it. it last time but it's my first time around with monster hunter as well Mm. Uh, same with Derek, so I've definitely been getting used to the whole Monster Hunter vibe and definitely liking the flavor of this one in a lot of ways. Me too, yeah. It's just so so much more accessible than any other one I've tried that mm-hmm. I don't feel like it's actively fighting against me whenever I want to learn something new about it. Yeah, like going from the... the I started on the PSP Monster Hunter games, and going from those to this is like, you know, trying to play soccer underwater to trying to play soccer with rocket boots. It's amazing. <laughs> it's a good comparison. <laughs> Well, Greg, I, I don't know how much time you've had to play Monster Hunter recently because I know you've been playing another game which you are working on review coverage for for RPG Fan, correct? I am. It'll be probably my first like actual review for them. Yeah, it's the Swords of Ditto, which is the new sort of co-op rogue... They're calling it a roguelite RPG from a developer One Bit Beyond published by Devolver Digital. So you and I have had pretty different experiences playing this game, but I want to give you the floor first because I think it is more suited to the kind of setup that you've got going, especially with your daughter, Gwen. So how's your experience been with it so far? Uh, so far, so good. Yeah, I grabbed it, uh, I think, a couple of days after it came out, because uh, I was going to do it anyways, uh, and figured, let's jump on it, get a review out there, do that whole thing. Um, and it's fun. It was easy to jump into, but it's also right out the gate. Um, it was definitely a lot more shallow than I was expecting when I first jumped into it, because uh, I played it at PAX 2017, 2016, no, 2017, that was last year, yes. Um, and the demo was pretty much that like first kind of little leg where you wake up on the beach, no spoilers, because it's the first thing that happens. Um, and that whole idea, but it definitely hits you in the face with, uh, this is Zelda, this is very much inspired by Zelda, here's your Ooh, yeah. companion, here's, go find your sword. There you go. Um, and gets a little handholdy out the gate, which part of me was like, okay, I can see where this would be approachable if Gwen were to start this game. That's great for me. I'm like, eh, I like a little more tell, don't show, but 
in in terms of like describe the world to me and let me figure it out as opposed to here's the glowing thing follow it okay. but anyway it was still really neat to get into and find that it was really easy to jump in and and it felt very familiar yeah it's uh I will say that, yeah. So it's it's funny, like you were mentioning the handholdiness, because I feel like the game starts out feeling very handholdy because they like to the degree that it walks you from point A to point B. It does follow the flashing sword here. Now go yeah. here, and the entire premise of the Swords of Ditto it is, as Greg said, it is like a two D Zelda styled action RPG. And um, I wrote here that it's basically if Legend of Zelda and Rogue Legacy had a child that really likes to watch Cartoon Network. Hey, there you go. That's a great description. So the the main premise of the game is you're playing as um, a hero who awakens and your destiny is to fight the evil witch Mormo and cleanse her evil taint from the world and then, you know, restore it to peace. So you take up the sword, the sword of Ditto, and you start the game by going to fight her and then you're killed pretty quickly. So yeah, it's, very, it's very dramatic. Yeah. It's like, what did I do wrong? Yeah. And so the, the sword, is, you know, chooses a new hero or reawakens every 100 years. So you're actually playing as it's more like the sword because um, every hundred years you get like a new randomly generated character and you just play as that person, they pick up the sword and then all of a sudden they have all of the stats of the last hero who died. And then you have to, progress through uh, this little like gameplay loop and with the, the ultimate aim of defeating Mormo. So yeah, it's very much a la, well, I guess we want, yeah, never mind. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. So whenever your uh, character, whenever you start like a run, quote unquote, you, you inherit all of the level, like the experience points from the, the previous characters that you had, uh, but you lose any stuff that you had on you, at least in the beginning. This is until you unlock some interesting stuff that helps you. It's definitely like Rogue Legacy. Like the more you work through, the more stuff you can retain to help your next playthrough. Mm-hmm. So it definitely um, speaks to that whole gameplay mechanic of don't be frustrated by death. Welcome mm-hmm. it and move so, forward. All right. So here's where I struggle with the game because I love <laughs> it. I love it conceptually, and I think that it's visually super, super charming. Mm-hmm. But the problem that I have is that the ideas that they have for your sort of progression loop in the game, I don't think that they really work that well. Because, as I said, every time, so, yeah, again, like the world is randomly generated. So, and I found out, I actually spoke to the developers in the game directly because I reviewed this over at my other outlet, CGM, and I emailed them because they were like, email us if you have any questions uh, while I was reviewing. And I wanted to get some answers because I was struggling with it a lot. And they did tell me that the game, it is not procedurally generated. It's like every room in the game is handcrafted and then kind of stuck together randomly. So, uh, so, so the dungeons are like stitched together of randomized pre-made rooms? Yes. It's like a so, random quilt every time. Yeah, so sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I find that more often than not, it doesn't. And the, the way that this game, um, like your character progression is such that even though you retain your level every time you die... Every time you start a new character, okay, so I'm still level seven from when I died last time, but all the enemies start at level seven too. And then I might go through yeah. my next run and then you know I'm to level 10 and then I restart and the enemies are level 10. So it's like you don't really get anywhere in terms of your character growing stronger because everything scales to match you. Now, 
the the big thing that you're more worried about is there there's like toys which are tools more or less so think like bow and arrow uh, bombs that kind of thing and stickers yeah. which are your equipment and you stick them to different parts of your character and they can do things like uh, you take twenty percent less fire damage or you, you can get more health from eating yes so that's great however you can't carry any of that over for a while the core gameplay loop is such that they want you to go out and uh, you have to go through one dungeon to get a toy, like a tool. Then you use that toy to go through a second dungeon and defeat one of Mormo's anchors, which are like these, you know, beacons or whatever that uh, send her power. And for each anchor you kill, she's weakened, thereby allowing you to like have a better chance at defeating her in her castle, which is the final dungeon. So you go through like four or five dungeons in a run. But if you, you know, have bad luck or you just didn't bring enough healing items or what, what have you, you may die and lose all of that. Now, there is a mechanic that allows you to, after, like, there's an item that you can collect called a celestial token. Correct. And they're, <laughs> as far as I can tell, they're, like, randomly placed. Um, sometimes they're at the end of random dungeons. Sometimes you'll find them in, like, chests here and there. Once yeah. you have enough of them, you can start using a system to pass stuff from character to character. Um, also, once you have found the place to put them in, because again, everything is randomly placed, so you have true. to still have to locate where those points of uh, accessing the tokens are. Yeah, they're like fountains that you have to put the tokens <clears> in. So those carry over, like the, the tokens themselves, if you die, you lose any you have on you. But if you place them in the, the fountain, the shrine of offerings, whatever, then they stay there permanently. And you got to get like eight or ten, I think eight, before you unlock this feature to start passing. Eight times, right, yeah. Yeah, um... So I think that's okay, but I think that the game sort of spins its wheels for way too long without giving you a way to meaningfully progress from run to run. Um, if you start out knowing that you need to collect those tokens and like slowly slot them into this fountain and then know that you're not going to get very far until that's done, that's okay. But I don't know. Um, I don't think it's a great system because the, to pass things from character to character, once you've unlocked that, that fountain system there's a new currency that starts dropping from enemies and like they even yeah. make a little space for it on your screen. It's a second currency besides just coins or whatever. And that currency is what you have to spend to send stuff from character to character, but that's not permanent. It's just for one run. So yeah. And it's, it becomes a really weird resource management game at that point that uh, like, yeah, you start running into this thing of like, there's all these weird collectibles. And, um, and I think I thought you were going to go with this stream when you were first, we're talking about the, um, the handholdiness at first that it gets to a point where all of a sudden the handholdiness is done. You're like, okay, cool. I can go and explore and do things. But there's a really like a richer, deeper meta that is very uh, opaque. It's hard to, to figure out. And like this whole sort of thing, like, oh, that's what these tokens do. Because I went and I put one in and I was like, okay, I didn't understand. No one told me that there's more to get. There's a light, you know, it does a good job in some ways of asking you to kind of learn from from watching and paying attention to your actions in a way. And I like that in some games, but sometimes a little nudge would be nice. I don't want them to say, follow the cookie trail to every single celestial token, but at least tell me like, oh, you're going to need more if you want to get a favor from the gods, as opposed to telling me, here's this token, put it in this thing and you'll probably get something from the gods. But you don't until you unlock it enough to get the currency that will then let you get things from the gods. Right. So you're so kind of fumbling like around that. trying to figure out what your objective is before. Yeah. You know, inorganically, like, well, I don't know, maybe it is organic. You sort of discover it. And then at that point, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. But that's the kind of information that I would have liked more in the beginning. Like, even if they just said, 
you know, keep an eye out for these. And if you collect eight, something good will happen. Or even if it was simply in like the, the sword keeper's place, if he had like a tome of books or you could ask him more things beyond just like his few questions about here's the world, here's Mormo, here's your job. But if right. you were just like, hey, I found these tokens, what do they do? Like even if the player wanted to go and read up about it and get some more info, even if your little helper isn't just popping up to say, hey, you found one of these, this is what it does. It'd just be nice yeah. to have an opportunity where you could go learn more if you wanted to, or if you're the kind of player who just wants to fumble through and explore and bump into things and figure it out for yourself, which there is a certain amount of joy in as well, which harkens back very much to the original Legend of Zelda of just walk into caves and see what happens. Yeah. I found that uh, enchanting, but it's hard now with this day and age too, where there's so many demands in your time. You sometimes you're like, could you just give me a little, little hint? Yeah. So my objective here isn't to endlessly harp on this, on the swords of ditto, because I don't mm. think that it is a terrible game by any means, but I, I do think that it is sort of flawed in some of the ways that it executes on its ideas. But that being said, yeah. It's this like super, super bright, colorful, whimsical action RPG that, as Greg was saying, evokes Cartoon Network sensibilities. Like it just looks like a Steven Universe or OK KO or, you know, any number of modern cartoons. I don't know, Gumball, like that kind yeah. of thing. And the mythos of the world very much harkens to um, Adventure Time because I one of the random things I did discover were these like ancient tablets that start unveiling some of like the ancient stories, which is very similar to kind of the overarching mythos of Adventure Time, how it seems like it's this interesting fantasy alternate world, but you kind of start to figure out that it's a very far advanced future version of our world that just been messed up by whatever magical sort of stuff. And it feels like there's some of that going on here. Mm -hmm. So I'm really intrigued by that aspect of it, that little deeper underarching storyline, which I think is the developer's way to kind of give it more substance because yeah, there's very little substance beyond. All right, go. Mm -hmm. yeah, that makes me think of Pony Glyphs and One Piece, but that's just another totally unrelated fandom of mine. I'm afraid ah, you just wanted to bring up One Piece again. I, I, I really did, yeah. But, but that, that was before we started rec recording, so it doesn't count. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I was just going to say, Greg, I feel like this game because I was playing this. I played it for myself with a bit. I played it with, excuse me, I played it by myself for a bit, and then I played it with my partner for a while too, and we both got kind of. I think tangled in this this annoyance or this irritation with like, oh, this game is just not giving us what we needed to give us, and we're annoyed with the lack of direction or whatever. Whereas you've been playing it with your daughter Gwen, and you said for her, it's great to just kind of wander and slash stuff, yeah, and see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Like um, when I, I came, I played it with her because one thing I've found really weird that the developer doesn't offer a a way to start a new game once you started the game. Um, like you have to go in and actually delete your save file okay. to give yeah, the game to give you the option. I'm playing on the PlayStation 4 to give you the, uh, the option to start a new game. Um, so when Gwen and I picked it up, I was hoping to just start it again now that I was familiar and go through it. But uh, it just asked us to continue the story. So she was coming in where I was already at like level four or five. So there was a bit of a, mm. a jump in that she didn't quite have everything was going on so i was trying to get up to speed as we went which again the game thankfully paces it out slowly enough as we we're walking over to revive the new sword that i could kind of give her this up and up on this is what's going on this is what this does this is what that does and she asked a lot of questions and she came by very intuitively as someone who's a bit familiar with some legend of zelda stuff like she's watched her mom play through all of wind waker um and she's been intrigued by other ones she hasn't quite gotten into the top down ones yet but i know she will um because you'll make sure it happens I will be, don't worry. 
uh, her biggest concern is, are there redeads? Because she is very afraid of redeads. Um, it's super endearing. Oh, no. um, this being the kid who also has played World of Warcraft. I don't understand. Anyways. Oh. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was, though, very fun to be able to kind of impart that to her and have her just get it as someone who does come by gaming in, easy enough. And again, the game, once you know what the buttons are, it's very easy just to dive into and, okay, slash out things, hit things, roll around. I want the sticker. I want that sticker, you know, and you can share. That makes it a lot easier too, especially like if she was the player with a friend, there'd be no fighting over who gets what sticker. You yeah. could, you could all have all the stickers. You could all have all the toys. It's great. I could yeah. also see it as a great game for her and her mom just to pick up and just play when her mom's home before uh, she goes to bed or something like that. If, like we have half an hour. Let's just dive into Ditto for a bit. And it's yeah. super easy. There's no constraints. There's no need to finish an, a concrete objective because you can just hop back out if you want. It's great for that. Yeah, I think that raises an interesting question of who the target audience is for the game because this does. Yeah. I feel like this game does have the the sort of DNA of stuff like Adventure Time, like you said, which, although ostensibly aimed at kids, a lot of adults uh, and older people enjoy these because they do have some darker or more complex subject matter. So. Um, Swords of Ditto has kind of like the same facade, but some of the backstory in the game, at least, is fairly dark. Although my question is more like the the nature of the game progression. It, it seems like it's pretty hard to get a grasp on. Even like I was having difficulty, and you were saying you were having difficulty figuring out like with the tokens and stuff. So it almost yeah. seems like if it's aimed at a younger audience, maybe which I'm not sure it is. It why is the game so hard to come to grips with in terms of like getting anywhere? And, if all you and what did you play it on difficulty wise? Uh, I played it on normal or whatever. Yeah, I think I started on the hard and went to uh, the, the middle, uh, normal one, whatever it is. But it, it, I'm curious, yeah, for relax because it also extends the amount of days you have, I think, based on your oh, yeah, that's, setting. That's something we didn't even bring up is that the, the reason I why sure, yeah. your character died, it's not just like your character does die if you run out of health, but also you only have a, a you have a time limit. You have like four in-game days to in complete, normal mode. complete the quest. Yeah. Or in the relaxed mode, you have like seven. Uh, that I don't, uh, I haven't tried the relaxed and I've done the hard and hard. You have three. Okay. So part of that uh, gimmick with being able to send stuff down from character to character, that also includes, you can pay a fee to rewind time some or give yourself an extra life. So you have to really, uh, know what your objective is and sort of farm the currency that you want to pay in to be able to do whatever, you know, like, Oh, I feel like I want, I can beat it next run. I just need more time and I have these items and stuff. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's a little, I think it's obtuse sometimes or opaque Yeah, uh, when it shouldn't be, but and it's definitely got the I, visual style and the, the charm. Absolutely. It's, it, uh, it was the kind of thing that once I played through it a bit and like, I think I got up to around level seven, but then I was kind of hitting some weird roadblocks and I was just kind of flustered with it a bit because yeah, the enemies were just hitting that much harder in a lot of ways. Now that I had gotten higher in levels that it was getting a bit frustrating. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to start again. Now that I have a clearer mindset of what this world is about. And I think players can definitely, definitely benefit from playing up the, starting up the game and playing through it a little bit. And just being unafraid of like, hey, I'm going to wipe my progress and go back and start again. Because you definitely can tackle with a clear head just with that concrete, fresh start. Mm. And like my, my second life, for lack of a better term, was like night and day from what it was the first time through. I got so much done. I was, I was accomplishing things. I hadn't had that. I got my Celestial Tokens already. And, 
and definitely opened up a lot of the the meta of the game and with a lot of understanding. And we're still being surprised. And I like that the game still has ways to surprise you with a few things, but it definitely can beat you down pretty quick if you ramp up your level too fast, but don't understand the deeper um, play mechanics. Yeah, uh, you can definitely run into a wall of frustration. So yeah, I, I definitely want to help that out with yeah we'll help Gwen out with that and stuff too so she doesn't get frustrated by that like now that we've played it a bit i'd be interested to see if she could start it on her account and which she might discover right. for herself in that and i also kind of wonder if they'll tweak the game like give balance updates or something down the line or or clear so. instruction you know i found yeah because i found there was like small little glitchy moments here and there and the odd like typo and stuff too which it, so there's the odd little thing that kind of speaks to a little bit of a lack of polish in the game yeah i would agree um but it overall, it is seems a little muddy on its audience. But I think it's also just trying to blend that world of letting kids play with the, the adults in a sense. Yeah. Like any modern Pixar movie, there's always going to be something in there that adults are going to be like, I get that, whereas the kids will get this from it as well. And both mm-hmm. audiences can come together and enjoy it in each their own ways, but also together as well. So I think mm-hmm. they're trying to do the same thing here with Ditto, and it's a great idea. It just needs some polish. I hear you on that. Yeah, but well, it's it's very fun and like it's very much it grabs you in very easily and you you definitely can get stuck in the uh, just one more life kind of <laughs> a gameplay mechanic. Right. Well, the Swords of Didio is on both PC and PS4, and it's only about fifteen bucks or so. So if you're curious about it, uh, you can check out Greg's review when that goes live in the next I don't know couple of weeks, or you can just check out trailer. some trailers or something. Yeah. So it's not a bad little game. Well, I want to give Caitlin some time in the spotlight because we missed her last episode, and I know you've been playing a couple of things here and there. The first one that I wanted to ask you about is a game that came out on PS4, I want to say like a year or two ago, and I remember I played it when it came out, but it was recently on PS Plus, and I don't know, is that how you got it, Caitlin? You got, uh, you've got you been playing Stories, The Path of Destinies? Yes, yeah. Um, I, I got it because I remembered uh, when uh, we had, still had Tooker, um, uh, John Tucker on the site, he did a Sunday stream where he played through uh, part of stories and I was his wingman for that episode. Oh, okay. Um, so I already was kind of familiar with it. And I was like, Hey, I know that game. Tucker played it. So yeah, I got it from PS plus. Um, it came out uh, just about two years ago in 2016. Um, and I decided finally it's been sitting on my games list for a while now. Cause I forget uh, it was, it was quite a while ago that it was on PS plus. Um, but I decided to finally check it out because the developer uh, is coming out shortly in the next uh, few weeks with a new game called Omen site, um, which is kind of in the same vein. It's not, it's not the exact same kind of stuff. They they're kind of billing it as being this uh this sort of uh, mystery adventure game in which you're trying to figure out uh, the mystery of the world um, going to crap, you know, the, some sort of world ending event that you have to constantly go back in time and figure out what's happening. Okay. And I was like, well, I should check out Stories since I have it because it is uh, Omen Side is being billed as sort of a spiritual successor to Stories. They're not. Mm. It's not a direct sequel. Um, it's said to be in the same world and same universe, but it's it's not a direct story connection. So it's like I should check out stories and see what it's all about. And it's a pretty cute, fun little game. Um, you play as this sort of uh, dashing rogue fox named Renardo, who is trying to find a way to uh, defeat an evil emperor 
and his army of evil ravens um, from like taking over the world or some crap. And uh, true to the name of the story, stories, uh, Path of Destinies, uh, one of the main mechanics is you get to choose, like it's like a literally like a choose your own adventure kind of thing. Um, every chapter you get a you get a big choice between two or three different options, uh, things you could do. Like you can go rescue an old friend or you can search for this mysterious super weapon that might be able to stop the emperor. And depending on your choices, you go to different places and down the line, every chapter you're making one of these choices, the story changes and you'll get a different story, a different ending every time. But it's all it's all pretty short. You can go through a path of of story choices within like probably you know less than an hour, uh, maybe maybe only like thirty minutes, depending on how fast you move through the uh, the different arenas. And that's not the end of the game. Once you hit that final you know resolution of the story, most of the stories end with your character dying and then mysteriously finding that he's been taken back in time to where the first. Uh, divergence happened, the first story choice you could make as to what to do. And suddenly you can go back and you can make different choices and you'll get different stories. And the game is nice and it gives you this sort of like little uh, little graph that shows you all the stories that you've seen and the choices you made along the way. And every story you go on, you'll learn a certain truth that's like that's true no matter what story you you experience. And once you get all of those truths, then you can actually sort of figure out a way to succeed and, 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 you know, defeat the emperor and not have everything go to shit. Um, so it's very cute in that you can sort of pick it up and play it for, you know, only a little bit of time, get a quote unquote complete story, and then come back, make different choices, see how those play out. And, you know, there's like 25 total stories. So there's a lot of replayability uh, in this. So there's lots to be seen, different outcomes. And in the meantime, while you're, you know, between making those choices, you have these uh, really cutesy, fun, um, isometric style sort of gameplay sequences where you're you're moving through environments, you are uh, dealing with these evil raven enemies, you're collecting uh, materials to craft uh, new weapons that can open uh, locked doors and get you to all sorts of goodies. And it it's it's a fun little experience. And the entire time the story is being narrated to you Bastion style mm-hmm. uh, by this one guy. He does all of the narration, all of the different character voices. So it's it's very much like you're sitting down and being told a story by like, you know, your dad or something like that. And it's there's a lot of humor in it. And there's there have been references to films and to memes and things like that. Like uh one of the first things uh, that the narrator told me was when I was breaking some boxes, he said, Renardo smash. And I was like, I got that reference, Captain America style. Um, uh-huh. yep. So it's really, it's, it's been fun. Um, <laughs> I'm, I like it. Uh, I have only unlocked like maybe five or so different stories. So there's a lot for me to do. Um, it does involve, you know, a lot of going back and running through, the same areas, but the narration kind of makes it interesting because it's it it'll change depending on your choices. And there's there's these little weird one-liners that are just like hilarious and and random that pop up. And uh, I mean, 
they they seem to be uh fairly unique and whatnot so it's yeah. uh, it's fun i think for it being a smaller scope type of game it actually manages to have a pretty far-reaching story with like some decently surprising twists here and there uh, because the entire thing is only gosh it's been so long since i played it but i want to say i beat the entire thing in like maybe six to eight hours tops so but there's enough permutations of that story to keep you interested in being like okay i wonder what would happen if i made this choice here and then of course it's kind of like you know a butterfly effect in that if you make choice a then at that branch you have another you have choices c and d and then at c i have choices e and f you know what i mean so like it's mm -hmm. not just it's not just like something changes at the end of chapter one some dialogue and then it progresses the same way anyway it's like every choice you make impacts the overall flow of the story so yeah it is like a choose your own adventure book and i I don't know if I've seen another game replicate that feeling quite as closely as this one does. Like you said, Caitlin, right down to the narration and things like, you know, you decide to do blah, blah, blah. And then this happens and it's like, okay. So it, it does kind of feel like you're creating your own story. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, before this, I mean, stuff like the Telltale games would have been kind of closest that I've personally experienced um, with that sort of choose your own adventure narrative. But those are much more... Uh, well, they're more cinematic in that they are cutscenes, and you don't have a narration. It's just how you experience things. And this does feel more like, you know, if you if you want to go rescue your friend, go to page four, and if you want to mm -hmm. go find the super weapon, go to page ten. You know that, and, and I mean, like, that's really cool because I remember reading those books when I was little. I, yeah, I loved too. those books. I thought they were so cool. <laughs> Yep, me too. Even if I kept dying because I made bad choices. <laughs> Just like stories, yeah. Yes, yeah. So stories, I think I think the only thing that uh, I would really knock against it is that it does feel lower budget to me at times. Like there is a little bit of jankiness occasionally with like your animations and stuff. And the, co the combat in it is pretty much just like your Batman Arkham style thing where enemies flash a certain color and you guard against them and then you hit the one behind you and all that, so. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it doesn't... It doesn't run as well on PS4 as I would have right. hoped. I mean, and I'm running it on PS4 Pro even. So um, there are there are frame rate issues uh, here and there that I'm seeing, and um, and I mean, yeah, it's got a it's got a bright art style, but it also kind of feels basic uh, at the same time. And y there's not a lot of variety in enemy uh, different types of enemies. There's there's a couple different types but you are by and large fighting the same type of enemies with the same tactics the entire time and you can mm -hmm. you can you know, you can um you can level up and you can get new skills um as you level up and every time you unlock a truth you get access to a new tier of skills so there is there is growth there and they can sort of change your tactics a little bit but not super a whole lot um and then you can do things like you can get gems to put uh on your your gauntlet that uh either like increase your resistance to damage or increase your chance to do double damage or i have one that now lets me disarm enemies with shields just by attacking them and previously i would have had to use a hook shot to yank it away from them um which could be tricky because using your hook shot uses up stamina which you have to wait for it to regen but now right. i can just like go ham and just you know i can spam the attack button pretty much and use counters a la like you said batman uh to counter enemies so it gets a 
it gets a little old. So, but I think, you know, it's not so much the, the might, the combat gameplay that is drawing me to it. It's the story and the narration and there's that that's really well done. Yeah. Which is great with a title like that. It's kind of, it has to, it's going to make or break it. If the story isn't there to hold <laughs> yeah. up the title. Yeah. Of the with story. a title like stories, the stories better be damn good. Yes. Yeah. yeah and they're pretty good. Well, the other game that I wanted to ask you about, Caitlin, that I know you've been playing is the demo for... Wait, did you... Did you? I thought I heard a scream in the distance. No, Rob Steinman's not here anymore. Um, <laughs> the demo for Detroit. So is this on... Is it just on PSN or... Yes, it's on PSN. Okay. You can go download it right now. It, uh, it came out earlier this week. Uh, I think it was on the 24th. So it is available now. And it is, it's basically the, um, the Connor demo that we saw last year or the year before. It was, it was shown at an E3 somewhere in the past. And you, you know, you're, you're an android sent in to do hostage negotiation. Um, there's a rogue android, they call them deviants in the game, um, who is holding a little girl hostage and your job is to go and talk him down. And it's just that one scene, which presumably is going to be like either the first chapter in the game or the first chapter for Connor that introduces him. He's one of the three protagonists in the game. So I checked it out because I'm in this weird position where I don't really particularly like David Cage and what he says about his games. And I've, I've kind of waffled on the actual games themselves. I liked Heavy Rain when it first came out and then really kind of fell off the deep end of not liking it afterwards. Beyond was kind of like, uh, no thank you. I watched a Let's Play of it and it's, mm. it's hey, a that's game. On, that's on PS Plus this uh, upcoming month for May. Is that's it? The free games. Yep. Oh, Okay. So in case you uh, care to experience a David Cage story and don't want to pay money for it, there you go. Starting yeah, in- yay. Yeah. I don't know if um, you'll ever to get that time paid back, though, is the issue. True. Yeah, there is a cost. It's just silent. But having said all that, I won't deny that the concept of Detroit Become Human, not the name because it's an awful name, um, does interest me because I like sci-fi. I like stories about artificial intelligence and how they, you know, achieve sentience and how humanity reacts to it. And I'm fully prepared for the game to sort of go up the deep end because pretty much every David Cage game does go off the deep end at some point. But I'm more interested just from the get-go in the setting of this game than I have been. Like, definitely more interested in this than Beyond Two Souls, which really turned me off from... The, the the whole start of that game. So having said that, with a grain of salt, my positive reactions, you know, take with, like I said, with a grain of salt. I maybe am the, the a gamer who is, this is more maybe my kind of game than it will be for some people. But there are some things that I really did like about it. Um, obviously, it looks freaking gorgeous. Um, there's one thing that, you know, that I, Quantum Dream Games tend to do is at least for their time um i don't know heavy rain doesn't look super hot anymore but for its time it, it, it was impressive they, they look nice and this this game looks very 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 pretty um especially you know if you're playing i'm again on ps4 pro so there's there's lots of nice little tweaks there um and uh i mean like yeah so it's it's a pretty looking game and if you that's your thing, you'll like it. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it's got the same kind of sort of setup. You move around, you interact with objects. It's got the same kind of love it or hate it uh, analog stick controls to pick things up and mm. interact with them. It doesn't really. It's still like the same. Yeah, gameplay. like the whole you had to move the stick down and then curve it around to to do something. It's still yeah, there. Um, it's hard tilt to tilt up to drink your coffee, but if you tilt too far, you spill it all over yourself, kind of thing. I well, I don't know. I don't know if they do that, but um, it it looks like it. They haven't necessarily changed the the basic setup, and so I imagine that it will involve some some uh, frustrations with uh, getting the precise movement correctly and. Um, you know, interacting with objects accidentally when you mean to move the camera or vice versa. But I mean, at the same time, I didn't have really any trouble navigating the environment. It's one chapter, of course, and it wasn't a particularly action heavy or QTE. There's only, there's only really one QTE uh, in the game, in the chapter there. So maybe it'll be different as, you know, for the chapters that are more action oriented come by. Um, but so that's still a thing. But I mean, like, it's it's interesting. Uh, Connor so far seems like he's going to be kind of more like Norman Jaden from Heavy Rain, who's he's he's a, he's an android. He's, he's a negotiator, but he works with the police. And part of what you can do in this chapter is explore the crime scene and learn or glean things that will help you negotiate uh, uh, this android, this rogue android, this deviant, and try and talk him down. So you can explore uh the the room with the little girl he's taken hostage and learn his name and you can you can actually find objects in the environment and uh using your special super android brain you can recreate what happened sort of again batman style to sort of see what happened you can you can scrub time back and forth and discover new uh new items that you might have missed on your first pass they can be you can be used uh to talk him down or to do what you will you can you can find a gun at one point by doing this and it, you can choose to use it or not um when you're actually dealing with him and uh i presume this will only be a thing for connor but everything that you do uh changes a little menu about your chance of success so the more you learn about the situation and why this deviant suddenly went violent and started shooting people it raises your chances of success if you waste too much time you can lower your chance of success things like that and then that all plays into the final confrontation of the chapter where you actually step out and you are talking with this this rogue android and trying to find a way of resolving and you have different options like the gun you can choose to use that you can try to get close to him and talk him down you can bum rush him and you know just you know push him off the uh, the the edge and try to sacrifice yourself that way and there are uh six i think different endings uh depending on what you do some of which involve connor actually uh what i'm sorry sorry that many endings just to that scene for the demo for this yeah for the demo um wow, okay there's a, i if I'm remembering correctly, there's six, um, some of which uh, involve you failing and having the, the hostage get killed, others of which actually involve Connor uh, getting killed or deactivated or whatever it is he he shuts down. Um, I'm not sure if that means permanent death for an android. I've seen some discussion about how, yeah, the main characters can die if you do, you know, make the certain choices in the game. And... 
uh, I guess we'll find out how permanent uh, of a you know death that is. But yeah, six different endings depending on your choices. And what's really cool, and what makes me a little bit more enthusiastic for this game is that uh, there's a flowchart that you can access um, at any time in the main menu, but also after you finish the scene. And it shows you all of your your significant actions that you took, um, okay. all of the things that you you found in the environment, and then your choices when you're actually negotiating with the uh, the deviant android and how it leads to the different endings. And I'm encouraged by this because it suggests that there's going to be more transparency in the game as to how your choices actually matter and and maybe you know fingers crossed that your choices actually matter it's kind of this this thing with games not just quantic dream games but telltale you know gets a lot of flack for having games that tell you they're about choices and how your choices shape the narrative and then not actually really giving you that freedom it's it's more just like a flavor choice that affects maybe how the ending is presented but you still end up getting you know one or two static endings okay and it's only one chapter, so we don't know how the choices, the endings, uh, necessarily affect further chapters. I don't know for sure yet if, like, if you get Connor killed, if that means that he just doesn't show up in the rest of the game or not. Yeah. Uh, it'd be really cool if that was the case, because you could really have some interesting playthroughs where one character or multiple characters is just not present and see how that impacts the other characters. But... I like at the very least the fact that they're trying to be more transparent and show you how your choices affect the narrative within at least a chapter or two. And I can see that being a really helpful tool for people who say, well, okay, I played through the entire game. I got this ending. I want to play through it again, try to get a different ending. This could be really helpful for actually helping you plan out how to get different endings instead of just saying, well, I'll do this thing here and hope that that maybe gets me a different ending. So that you know the actual consequences of whatever choice that you're making and not just be like, well, yeah, I think this makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And I love the actual fact that that stuff actually plays into it. So it's something I've been wanting from a lot of games in general and RPGs and stuff too, where uh, what you find, what you notice, and even just the time you take dilly-dallying around to find that stuff does have an effect on how you're going to encounter the quote-unquote boss moment, so to speak. Uh, as opposed to just being like, oh, I'm just going to go side quest for ages and no ramifications will come of this. It's kind of nice that there's a game that kind of holds you beholden to that. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm actually really excited for this game. I've been interested in it for a while, but the demos got me kind of rare into to experience it. And I, I go into it fully expecting yeah. for there to be a David Cage, you know, devolve, devolve of the story towards the end. But... I will be pleasantly surprised if it doesn't. So, so May twenty fifth cannot come soon enough. Yeah, and then maybe uh, Rob Steinman will be so heated over this game that he'll come back on the show and share his thoughts. Yeah, or this could be the one that redeems for him. No, I mean, he, 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 there's there's zero percent chance of him uh, acknowledging <laughs> that a David Cage game is good. No, and I mean, I'm there are there are potential issues already that we've seen with the game. The the um, some of the the visual not the visuals but the the techniques that they've employed to demonstrate how androids are being uh, oppressed is going to ring as hollow or it's going to ring as uh, appropriation 
um, of right. issues, uh, you know, specifically issues uh, for for black people and uh, racism against people of color. And uh, I don't, I mean, I can see the potential from what I've heard of uh, various different things that are shown to you in the game. I can see that being an issue. I don't want to make a judgment call on it until I've played the game and I've got the context for it. Um, maybe, you know, it, we saw, we've seen that before in, in other games. Deus Ex also was pretty shitty in its appropriation of, of those issues to create uh, the, the scene of the oppression of uh, augmented individuals. So, and I mean, again, it's David Cage. We don't really necessarily think of David Cage games as being nice and subtle and, yeah, and respectful. So, I mean, there's, there's plenty of opportunity for it to, like I said, go down the deep end, but I'm still, from what I've played, I'm, I'm interested. I'm, uh, I don't know if interested is too strong of a word for me at this point, but for I want to know more, um, down. Yeah, for me, it's morbid curiosity and not interest, really. Yeah. I'm definitely curious myself. I like, uh, same with Kim, I enjoy that whole sci-fi questions with AI and stuff like that. Um, so I'm intrigued to see how this kind of all plays out. I haven't dipped my toe into any of the David Cage stuff, so I'm not uh, bitten yet by him, but I've heard definitely enough <laughs> on this podcast uh, about why I shouldn't uh, want to look forward to this game. <laughs> I wanted to ask, have you heard anything about, I was just, just looking it up, this whole CyberLife thing and how it ties into the whole um, uh, Amazon Alexa thing? Oh, I'm curious too. Yeah, I heard about that, but I didn't I didn't know that that was a thing when I was playing through it, so I have to I have to load the demo up and try it. I, in. I, I have Alexa. So. Oh, you do? Okay. Yes. Yes. I have one on my desk, and I actually just reached over and pressed the button, the mute button, just in case I said her name because I didn't want her talking back. <laughs> <laughs> She's so sassy. She talks back to you. She told me a story today. Yeah, this morning, because one of the things you can do is say Alexa. I, I always do uh, Alexa, good morning, and what's the weather like while I'm laying in bed. And when she says good morning, she'll give you like, when you say good morning to her, she'll give you a fact or something about like today's national whatever day. And one of the things she was like, ask me, say Alexa, tell me a story. And so I did. And she told me like a sci-fi story about a plant, uh, like a seed germinating on a spaceship and then becoming a new plant on Mars. And I was like, what? <laughs> what is going on? So I don't, <laughs> I don't know. It's like, is this a David Cage thing? Did like, is this is part of Detroit's <laughs> marketing. What's happening? That'd be fascinating. Yeah, like subterfuge here, like guerrilla marketing. Yeah, I'm interested to see what uh, what effect that has on your demo playthrough if you go through another run of it, to Caitlin. Yeah, I'll have to experiment. Well, you are now our designated Detroit correspondent, so please wear your title proudly. I I will try. Yeah. Well, I I think that's probably it for new games that we wanted to discuss today. But Greg brought up an interesting topic that I want to get into just a little bit. We <laughs> have seen the rise and fall of sort of like phones specifically oriented as gaming devices. Now, smartphone gaming is incredibly prevalent today. I mean, it's said that more people play games on phones than any other medium. And that's certainly true based on the popularity of stuff we see like like Candy Crush and... Um, words with friends and that kind of stuff. But also mobile games are a market that are big, especially with gotcha games and stuff like that. So, you know, over and the now years, we're even getting so, Fortnite and stuff too. Yeah, ex exactly. Fortnite is huge on phones right now. So uh, right now, those are the kind of games that people can just play on their existing smartphones, like uh, Android phones, Apple, that kind of thing. But we've also seen devices like the Nokia N-Gage, which was supposed to be 
a phone that you also used with uh, its own special game cartridges. And the, the N-Gage is a weird example because it even, like, it totally failed, but it had stuff like uh, Pandemonium, the PlayStation 1 uh, platformer game, and it had uh, Xanadu Next from Falcom on it and, like, some strange esoteric stuff on it. But I feel like it's been a long time since we've seen phones that have been specifically oriented as, like, this is a gaming phone. And I also remember... Back, it was long before the Switch came out. I remember hearing rumors about, like, what if Nintendo releases a Nintendo phone where it has, like, a slide-out D-pad or whatever? And I always thought that would be super cool, and I would actually switch to something like that because I, you know, generally am not a huge fan of playing stuff on my phone because I don't like touchscreen controls most of the time, unless a game is specifically oriented around using it. Like, it's just not a thing for me, and I... I'm willing to deal with games that are built around it, but like virtual D-pads and buttons, I hate. So Greg was talking about how this company, uh, is the company Xiaomi? Xiaomi I was going to say, it out, sounds Xiaomi, yeah, sounds like it should be it. Yeah, it's bringing out uh, the Black Shark, which is a new phone specifically oriented for gaming to the degree that it's got like, it has a multi-stage integrated liquid cooling system to keep the phone. <laughs> which is insane for a phone. Which is crazy, yeah. And it has this um, peripheral add-on. It's like a little, it looks like a little analog nub and a pad or something. I can't tell, but it's called the Black Shark Gamepad. It's like a separate thing that you can buy for this phone for around 28 bucks. And I don't know, it's just kind of interesting. So I suppose my question is, you know, what are what do you guys feel about the idea of new gaming oriented phones. Like, would you get a phone specifically made to be a gaming phone or? Absolutely not. No? No. Oh. I, I, it's not, I mean like, it's not why I'm going to buy a phone is to play games when I have other handhelds that are gonna be, sorry, are gonna be better at it and are gonna have more of the games I wanna play. And the other thing I'm thinking is, it's one thing to create a phone that makes it easier, like if it has a peripheral that has, you know, controls and whatnot, but that doesn't mean that developers are going to make games that are worthwhile playing on mobile or that take advantage of that hardware. And they kind of can't because they have to create something that can be played on uh, on a phone, you know, whether it's Android or uh, Google or, or Windows, or sorry, Android or iPhone or Windows regardless of what hardware you have. So I don't, I don't see developers making games that take advantage of that kind of thing, you know, and if they do, they know that they're going to get reduced sales because it's only going to be playable by a subset of the population that has that kind of hardware. So it's just like, I, uh, it's, uh, I don't, yeah. I don't know. No, I, I'm right there with you. Like I said, I, I'm also not such a big fan of um, phone gaming for the most part. And I feel like I would rather just play on a dedicated device. Um, it's something that I'd be willing to entertain if a company, I mean, it would seriously have to be like Nintendo or Sony. And I feel like if one of those yeah. released a, a phone that had, you know, like uh, slide out into full buttons, I don't even know what kind of configuration it would have to be for me to be happy with it. But it would have to be so thoroughly oriented towards being a game device first and foremost that I don't know how I would find interest in it otherwise. And it gets into the question too of like where else is it suffering? I mean, because a lot of phones are battery, phones battery are integrated. Life, and that's how stuff. it's suffering. It's gonna it's gonna be able to have you know ninety minutes of charge time. Yeah. Well, these ones are they're definitely being touted at having um, 
40,000 milliamp batteries that can definitely last for pretty much the entire day is what they're touting. Um, and then of course, having these cooling systems to stop them from getting hot. Cause I've definitely had the odd time where I've been playing like Elder Scrolls Legends for several matches and hours. And I'm just like burning my hand by the end of it, if I'm not careful, mm. uh, cause the phone can really get hot with the screen lighting up like that. So I can see that as being an appealing thing. And there's definitely a market for it in some ways, but Caitlin's exactly right too. in saying that developers can't be expected to target just to people with these peripherals, but I can see it as being like a tick box option of like, Oh, you have the black shirt or you have like a gaming peripheral. So then it'll give you more screen real estate because then it's it cleans up the UI maybe. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm still on Caitlin's side. I, I think that dedicated gaming devices, handheld gaming devices are more suited to that purpose. And I would rather have a phone that's more concentrated on being a good phone, but I'm also not a good example for this because the only phone games I play are, you know, number games like threes and card games like, uh, like Ascension, which would probably be better on an, on a, uh, on a tablet than a, than a phone. But right. I, 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 use, I don't, I, I don't dedicate, you know, my, my hardcore game time to, to phone games, so I'm not interested in, in a gaming dedicated phone so much. No, of course not. But I can, um, I guess, the, and that's the other thing too. Is that for us, the generation that has grown up with a lot more of the handhelds and stuff, and haven't had like a, an iPad in our hands from age three. Like Gwen is a wizard with it. Uh, when I when I first came into her life uh, around three four, as her stepdad, and she could navigate an iPad like a breeze. Whereas I feel like if you had asked three year old Greg to have it, he probably would have figured it out. But it still was like. It just we didn't grow up having that, you know, and for them, a lot of their gaming is very centric on that now with especially with PUBG and Fortnite and Minecraft, you know, I could see it being a lot more appealing to kids maybe and their generation as they grow up to maybe look into these kind of phones, but maybe it's not for us who look to Game Boy and its predecessors per se. Hmm. I wonder, yeah, maybe it's just a difference in demographic, but um, yeah, no, I'm generally just not that interested in phone games. I make exceptions every now and then, but uh, the, it's more like the the lack of physical buttons is, is the one thing, and then the sort of type of game that's endemic to mobile phones mm-hmm. is what I'm not really so interested in. So, And I agree with that, too. There's very few, though, there that really... I mean, there's, there, there's definitely some impressive stuff that they're developing for phones, um, but I've already gotten so used to playing those kinds of games elsewhere that I don't feel the need to do it on my device and eat up battery time X or um, data or whatever on my phone where it's like, well, I can just do this on my DS or do it on my PlayStation or whatever, right? So mm-hmm. I'm definitely in that uh, same side of the argument as you folks. It's just interesting. I, I don't think it's going to go away, though. I think they are going to keep developing this because there's a definite market for it. And as I was saying, too, like it, especially in China, where a lot of gaming, a lot the bigger gaming happens on phones and stuff more so than it does because the console market penetration isn't as big apparently there. Mm, that's true. Yeah. Anyway, well, it's interesting. Yeah, no, interesting topic to bring up. Um, I just, I, I'm not that passionate about it, so I don't have as much of a like strong mm. stance to take on it. So I'm still trying to wrap my head around a liquid cool system that can actually work in a phone's form factor. Like, I mean, like I'm, they're not small. Like when you, even the ones that you have inside uh, gaming rigs, they're not small. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. And these phones don't look like they're huge by any means from what I've seen. They're sizable, but they're no bigger than like a uh, iPhone X. 
plus or whatever it is. Let's see, they're like certainly a feat of engineering, if nothing else, right? So. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, and as we were saying in the pre-show too, there's the Nubia Red Magic, which was also going to be crowd-funded on Indiegogo to try and get out tomorrow. I was saying had a RGB uh, light up, and Caitlin was like, "What? Why? Why?" <laughs> I, <laughs> see, I it's just... eating up so much battery. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it seems like it would be so neat to have like your cool glowy phone, but at the same time, it's for like I just get annoyed people. And then I'd be like, no, Duh. yeah, I get annoyed when people have those like their their flash goes off on their phone when like they get a text message, even yeah. though it's just like jarring. So having it constantly like cycling through color swaps like my Alienware would just be bizarre. And why are you doing that? I need you for battery. I need it for phone calls. Yeah, I would turn that off immediately. I'm yeah. sorry. Can you call me on my other phone? I use this phone for gaming and nothing else. Because it has <laughs> lights on the back. Okay. Yeah, I need to conserve the battery just for that. What a world yeah. we live in. Yeah. For, it, it, well, I mean, for me, it just makes all way more sense. To, if you want a gaming, I, I would rather have them in separate devices. Even if I wanted to play, like, say, uh, um, iOS games. On a um, like uh, you, you know, with my dedicated game time, I would rather have it on a tablet than a phone. I just it just it, it's the center of a Venn diagram I want no part of. No, that's fair. Mm -hmm. Well, let's move on to talking about something that is within our coverage. I mentioned that I wanted to bring up whenever we have interesting milestone features on the proper site and just kind of give away the title of the feature. So as, <laughs> as part of our ongoing 20th anniversary celebration at RPG Fan, the latest main feature that we have is the 20 years of milestone RPGs feature. So the purpose of this isn't necessarily to just call out everybody's favorite games on staff and say, yep, Final Fantasy VIII is my favorite game or whatever. It's to, to bring to attention games that did something meaningful or that caused a, a shift in the market to a really drastic degree, kind of like how Final Fantasy VII changed everything. I'm quoting from the article here at this point. Um, but Final Fantasy VII was the year before uh, this feature started in terms of our coverage for it, so not that specific game. But I know that several of you here, uh, Solosi and Caitlin, you both wrote some, some uh, games. Sorry, I cannot talk. You wrote about some of the games for this feature, so I just wanted to you know, have you bring it up a little bit. So, Caitlin, I know that you wrote about, what, Final Fantasy fourteen and Horizon? Yes. Okay, so why did you feel like those were milestone games? Um, well, Final Fantasy fourteen. I mean... I mean, it's like I can just rehash everything I've ever said about Final Fantasy fourteen on the podcast. Everyone knows I'm a Final Fantasy fourteen fangirl, but... Are you? Um, yes, I am, seriously. Uh, anyway, so, as I wrote in the feature, it's kind of a double milestone it's a milestone i think in the industry because you know the everyone i think knows the story about how horrid 1.0 was and i did not play 1.0 i came in um i came in about a half a year after 2.0 was released so i never personally experienced it but we've all heard the horror stories of the gameplay and the glitches and and everything else that was wrong with it so much that they had to you know apologize to their player base and reboot it from the ground up and not that we haven't seen games or franchises do that you know recreate themselves um but to the extent that 1.0 failed i mean it was out for barely over two years before uh, they shut down the servers mm -hmm. and i think 
if it had been a different company, a, a, a you know, I don't want to say lesser, but a, a less um, big name, renowned company like Square Enix, if that had happened, it could easily have been, you know, uh, the end for for a company like that, and for Square to come back and not just save the game, but save it in such a way as to make it this amazing experience that you know Mike and I can't stop gushing about on the site. Uh, Mike Salvato, I mean, mm-hmm. sorry, Salosi. I, um, I like FF14 too, but I've not had nearly the time, investment, or dedication you have to it. Yeah, um, to make to to come back and and recreate it and make it this this successful uh, MMO that now has like um, it's now actually I think over twelve uh, million um, uh, sub- subscriptions, not necessarily active players, but people who have subscribed to the game at one point or another with two successful critically acclaimed expansions, no real slowdown in sight. That to me, I think is kind of amazing. It's not something that you see uh, every day in games for something to fail so spectacularly that it needs to be redone 100%. And then for it to come back and, and not just be a great game, but be a great game, even compared to other games in its own franchise and i I will will say i've said before it's the best final fantasy of the past decade um not taking into consideration zodiac age i'm considering 12 as having been released in 2006 so it's not within that last decade um but for me it's also a milestone because i never played an mmo before uh outside of like spending maybe a few hours in a crappy free uh MMO that could barely run on my laptop at the time. I had no business trying to play it seriously. I never played MMOs. I didn't really think that they were for me. I didn't like the idea of monthly subscriptions. I didn't like the idea of having so much content to run through. I was nervous about the idea of playing with other people. I'm kind of an introvert, kind of a shy person. I don't like playing competitive multiplayer for that kind of reason. And even cooperative multiplayer was scary to me. And, you know, I finally jumped in because I had a friend who was raving about it. And I've been subscribed for, um, let's see, uh, over four years now, going on four and a half, I think, in a few months. So for me, that was a big milestone. Um, So, yeah, I love 14. And then Horizon, you know, Maybe it seems a little weird to include a game that's only about a year old, but I do think that Horizon is worth mentioning because it's a it, not just because a it's this beautiful, gorgeous AAA RPG, but you know it was a new IP from a developer who had never done this kind of game before. The, you know, um, Guerrilla Games—they're most well known for the Killzone franchise, which are beautiful games, but they're first-person shooters, and this is a third-person. Uh, action RPG and to to manage that kind of feat in this uh, in this sort of uh, day and age where there have been AAA games that have promised the world and then you know either fallen fallen flat on their face or have just not lived up to that promise to have this new IP really live up to the promise be that beautiful run that well be that fun and to top it all off with a female protagonist who. Come at me, bro, is really one of the best female protagonists I've ever seen in a game. Um, is just I really think worth recognizing, and I hope that it's. I do think that it's going to be kind of a 
uh, an example for games to follow in the future that want to go into that that sort of that mold of the open world uh, adventure game. I think that we're going to see developers taking cues from that uh, going forward, or at least I hope that we will. Yeah, I think that's very eloquently stated. And then, Solosi, you wrote about how much you love the Kingdom Hearts series, right? Just nothing but Kingdom Hearts? Is that correct? <laughs> oh, wow. You're lucky Rob's not here. Okay, so you wrote about... Uh, what did you write about? You wrote about Persona 3, I know that, and Dragon Quest Eight. yes? Correct, yep. Okay. Um, I guess... Uh, I think both of those were milestone PS2 games in part because of what they did within their own series. Um, Dragon Quest VIII came out in 2004, 2005, and uh, so about 20 years after the original Dragon Quest games. And uh, Dragon Quest is the sort of granddaddy of RPGs. It's the original. It's one of the most popular video game series in Japan. And uh, indirectly, every Japanese RPG takes some inspiration from Dragon Quest. But uh, before Dragon Quest VIII, it was really only niche uh, popular. It only had niche popularity outside Japan, and with Dragon Quest VIII, it represented a turning point. I feel because it was the first one to have full 3D visuals, the first one to have uh, voice acting, even though it was only in uh, um, inter international versions of it, and the and the first one to have um, a fully orchestrated score. Although that was also only international versions, and it also was you know a I, I at least in my opinion an excellent standalone RPG that represented all of Dragon Quest's strengths with a sort of a fairy tale kind of story that ties up loose ends at the end and has those really colorful and appealing Akira Toriyama designs. So it's it's an excellent game that did a lot of new things for Dragon Quest and also was the first one to have a truly international release. It was the first Dragon Quest game to be um, released outside of Asia and North America. It was the first one to go to Europe. And without... Dragon Quest VIII being such a huge success, uh, I don't know if we get, if I say we, I mean the uh, the international community gets those DS and 3DS remakes, or if Dragon Quest XI looks like it does, because eight and eleven are the only really two massive scale 3D environment Dragon Quest games. I mean, I haven't, Dragon Quest X is the one I haven't played, so I, I for, forgive me if the MMO Dragon Quest also uh, hit some you, of those Dragon Quest Eight notes. Yeah, Mike, what do you mean you haven't played the Japan-only MMO that requires a subscription and a Japanese IP to play? That's ridiculous. I know. It's a, it's a personal failing on my part. I apologize. Yeah, well, you can get off the show, too. So, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, Dragon Quest Eight felt like a turning point for the series that I think is shaping um, the, you know, old one of the oldest, most successful uh, RPG series of all time. It, it, it's shaping its image going forward. And I yeah. thought it was a really important PS2 game. It modernized it, for sure. And I would say you could even argue the same about the other game that you wrote about, Persona 3. Yeah, I, I, I'm making really a similar argument for two PSP, PS2 games that came out a couple years apart. Um, and they're, and they might be my two current, you know, highest hype level uh, series that I'm deeply into. Because Persona 1 and 2 were, again, niche popular games, probably even within Japan. And, uh, uh, and and I had heard of them, but that was because I was, you know, entrenched in, uh, but I had heard of Persona before Persona 3, but that was because I was, you know, deep into um, RPG communities and, and forums that were, you know, are, you know, practically drowning in enthusiasts of uncommon JRPGs. But I had, I had tried Persona 1 and thought it was terrible and sort of, sort of given up on it. But 
Uh, and that was that was early two thousands, I guess. But Persona Three had uh, completely changed the scope of the series. It went from you know being teenagers summoning. Uh, it went from being basically a, a normal kind of SMT flavored RPG, but but starring teenagers with weird goings on in their town, and uh, had this developed a new framework that borrowed from uh, dating sim games, where you were living the life of a of a teenager in Japan and the, uh, and, you know, fighting demons and battling your inner demons and making social connections strengthened your combat, uh, strengthened your abilities in battle. And I think the fantasy of, of a sort of a Japanese high school anime and the fantasy of being part of a, you know, like Buffy, the vampire slayer, Scooby gang fighting monsters after school was uh, a really appealing combination and Persona 3 was such a huge success that Persona 4 and 5 were basically made in its image. Right. And all of the old Persona games got remade. And there's, there have been a multitude of spinoffs from anime to fighting games to dungeon crawler games. Um, yeah. And and then now, uh, I think I mentioned this in the blurb, Persona games now have now outsold the greater Shin Megami Tensei fran- franchise. Yeah. And if anything, and I think it's the success of Persona 3 onward has shaped the success of Atlas, which is, you know, a niche RPG player's uh, favorite company in many cases. <laughs> yeah. So I would agree that it is hugely influential for those reasons. <clears throat> Excuse me, for those reasons. So if you guys are interested in hearing any more about the milestone RPGs that we pick for the future, you can check that out on the RPG Fan main page as of right now, or you can go to RPGFan.com. Uh, I think it's just slash features. Yeah. Uh, and we also have it in the top navigation bar under features so you can read more about what we picked and why so just a couple more quick hits to round out the podcast today um we did recently receive the announcement that there is a new entry in the etrian odyssey series coming out soon and it is etrian odyssey cross it looks like an x but it is pronounced cross it even says cross in the graphic just like just like monster hunter cross and monster hunter double cross (laughs) Ooh, double cross yeah mhxx is pronounced monster hunter double cross and it Um, i think that's amusing just great. So this is the supposed to be the final Etrian Odyssey game on the Nintendo 3DS, and it is going to be a culmination of the series thus far by bringing in all the past character classes. There's like, jeez, uh, 14, 15? Is there more than that? Uh, 19. 19 character classes, including one new one, the hero. And you'll be able to make your own adventuring party, as always, using a combination of whatever characters you like best. I would have to imagine they're going to rebalance in a lot of ways to make these classes work together because in every Etrian Odyssey game it's like you know we have a medic in one and then we have uh like a a healer or a shaman I forget what it's called but there have been like some kind of overlapping classes here and there so I'm guessing they're going to sort of make these classes work in a way that would be preferable because otherwise I don't want uh you know what's the difference between a hero and say a prince princess because the prince class uh, princess class was about buffing your party and having like marching uh rallying orders and that kind of thing. And it seems like the hero might kind of be the jack of all trades along those lines. So I'm just kind of curious as to how they'll balance it. But it is uh, coming out later this year in Japan. US release has not been announced yet, but it is pretty likely because we haven't missed an entry in Odyssey game yet. So Uh, the other piece of news that I wanted to bring up is that Disgaea 1 is getting its remake finally. It's called Disgaea 1 Complete, and it releases in Japan later this year. It's going to be on the Switch and PS4 and it's being made to commemorate the series' 15th anniversary. So kind of hard to believe. Disgaea was sort of the game that launched NIS America uh, 
it, you know, it put them on the the map as far as I'm concerned. And the, yeah, the first one with, that got iterated on it. So the first one was localized by Atlas, and then they had an uh, a game that came before it. Um, Oh shoot! The, the one with angels, uh, Lapucel Tactics, uh, uh, localized. That la- published. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Localized after Disgaea One was, but then um, after a, a, a couple early Nipponichi games made it through, NISA was formed, and they've been. It's been their big money maker, I think. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we don't really have. Uh, again, we we haven't heard confirmation of a U.S. release yet. Correct. Or no, NIS America did announce it. I'm sorry. Yeah, NIS America is the one who announced that uh, this guy won't complete is coming out. So that is coming out this fall in the U.S. Sorry about that. So if you're interested in the series and want to go back to its roots, you can check that out and uh, have it on your Switch, which is pretty cool. I I reviewed Disgaea 5 on the Switch last year. God, hard to believe it was a year ago already that the Switch came out. And I felt like, you know, in terms of bang for your buck, man, Disgaea games, you can get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours out of, even if... Uh, you know, I don't love everything about them. There's so much to do there. So a remake of this guy one uh, for Switch could be a really good way to spend your time. So. It's it's one of the better games in the series. So anyone who's curious or wants to dive into that again, it's, the Switch is the best imaginable place to play it, I think. I would agree. And my final note for today is, so once again, jumping off of something that was posted to our social media accounts, Steph posted a really cool little, uh, what did she call it? A fan care package for people who are interested in this game. We just celebrated the 18th birthday of Breath of Fire 4. And I know 18 is kind of a weird number to do a celebration for, but Breath of Fire 4 is an excellent game, so I will allow it. Um, Steph, uh, she had posted some stuff, some art on her Instagram and linked to our uh, soundtrack review that was done way back when. And I know Breath of Fire 4 is available on the PSN. It's like six bucks. So you can play that on your Vita or PSP or PS3 even. I wish I could play it on my PS4, but uh, Vita will will get the job done. So in light of that, I just end to say, you know, hooray, happy birthday, Breath of Fire, a series that I've always adored. Um, do any of you have a favorite Breath of Fire game? I know one of you, Caitlin, did you say you haven't played any? I haven't played any. Okay, so um, you, I'm going to say that your answer is four just to um, support my <laughs> so, uh, Greg, do you have a favorite Breath of Fire game? Uh, yeah, the first one I, had, I ever got into, and it's probably one of the earliest JRPGs I ever played on the PlayStation, was Breath of Fire 3. Uh, yeah. I I think I played it with someone who rented it, and then I eventually I was like, I have to have this, and I bought it for myself and went through it and full Super Saiyan and all that sort of stuff and beat <laughs> it. Um, but it was, it, it's a, it was a great game, and I really wanted to try 4, and I haven't gotten around to it, but I have gone back and tried 1 and have enjoyed it as well, but 3 is definitely, I just, it looks gorgeous, the the pixel art in it is incredible. The 3D mm-hmm. background immigration was great. Yeah, the Breath of Fire 3 seems to be... It feels like it's the most well-known um, from whenever I talk to somebody about that series or like, oh yeah, I played Breath of Fire 3. I, I don't know. I don't know that that's necessarily the most popular, but it's it's good. Um, one, I think even 3, the, the series is known for having pretty poor localizations, especially the earlier ones. Like 2 was notoriously bad. And oh, really? I... I yeah, I played it a ton as a kid, but there are places in the game where it just flat out tells you incorrect information about like where to go, or the dialogue doesn't make sense. So it, it's a mess. Shame. Yeah, and they, I think that they redid the script for the Game Boy Advance ports of one and two. Is that correct? Do you know, Salusi? 
Um, I know, I know that they, uh, I know that they did have those ports, but I didn't play, I didn't play either of them. I played the, I played both of them on rentals on the Super Nintendo. Would have been smart. Okay, yeah. Well, that would be something to go and look up on, like Hardcore Gaming 101 or something. But right. Um, fun fact though about Breath of Fire Three. So the composer Sean Shafiansky, who did the opening music for the now sadly on hiatus Rhythm Encounter, um, he's a friend of the site. He actually did a Breath of Fire 3 remastered album. So uh, on his Bandcamp, it's just his name. So it's uh, Sean Shafiansky. It's S-C-H-A-F-I-A-N-S-K-I dot Bandcamp.com. You can find his Breath of Fire 3 remastered tracks album. It's a... Looks like it's ten bucks, and it's got fourteen tracks, and they're all like very jazzy and cool and well done. So, if you're interested in hearing some Breath of Fire three music, that might be a way to spend your afternoon. And Solosi, do you have a favorite BOF? Uh, yeah, I've played the first four, but I only finished two and four, I think. Um, so four is the best one. The faux loose segments are awesome. Mm-hmm. The uh, the sprite work is absolutely gorgeous. Every, um, all of the attacks have great animations. The cast is diverse and cool. I remember I, I played it for um, the Retro Encounter podcast in uh, December, January, uh, this past December and January, and I, uh, for the first time, and I really, really liked it. Um, Alana and Steph joined me on those, and it was a lot mm. of fun to record. But um, can I can I give you uh, two Breath of Fire fun facts quickly? You may. Um, uh, back when they were both with Capcom, uh, Yoko Shimomura contri- contributed to the Breath of Fire 1 soundtrack. Uh, back when she was in-house in Capcom. And also cool. the, the lead character artist for Breath of Fire 1 and 2, I believe, was uh, Keiji Inafune, the original designer of Mega Man. Oh, huh. I did not know that. Actually, I think I think they were both only 1 and not 2. 2 was a little different. But uh, yeah, so the, the, um, back in Cap- when Capcom was awesome, they made some... <laughs> right, stuff, yeah. Please. I've got the Breath of Fire, whatever it's called, uh, Complete Works or Official Works or whatever art book on my shelf over here. And uh, it's got designs from other series. Such a good book. It makes me really nostalgic and wistful for a new Breath of Fire game. And the character and and world designs are definitely strengths of that series. So an art book, I bet, is is a really fun page turn. Yeah, it is. Especially, I think, for... um, Has some of the the best video game art out there. I just absolutely love... Like, there's a piece with... I think it's Ryu and Nina on a little boat, and there's, like, a gigantic dragon, and you can just see its eye because it's so huge, and it's you know, like peeking through the clouds. That piece of art is iconic for me. And it's one thing that I always <laughs> look back at. Like, I mean, I was talking about the scene from um, Grandia and the end of the world last episode. That's the kind of like, when I think of RPGs from that era, that's one of those scenes that always gets stuck in my head. So yeah, Breath of Fire 4 is a pretty special game. And I'm, I'm glad that um, some people are celebrating the anniversary. I would love to see some more done with this franchise. Oh, and also my favorite Breath of Fire. Um, I do think as much as I played the heck out of two as a kid i played all of them but two i replayed the most probably just because i had access to it and i do i love four but i i think there's something really special about five it is such a weird game and it's like a weird mixture of survival horror and rpg and the it doesn't have like randomly generated dungeons or roguelike elements or something um it might have one randomly generated dungeon I, okay. I can't remember like a bonus dungeon, but the the core game is is all handcrafted. The thing about five is that every time, like uh, the main character Ryu, as always, can turn into a dragon, but it's like a finite resource in this game. And every time you use this transformation, this gauge uh, counts up or down. I don't remember. And when the gauge is is full or empty, I don't remember a hundred percent something like that. Uh, it's game over. 
and you're you're done. You cannot progress the game anymore. So what you have to do is start a new game using your data and you carry over stuff into your next run. And you also, so it's not just that you carry over your like items or experience or whatever, but you also um, gain access to new cutscenes every time you start a new game. So depending huh. on how much progress you made or like what you what you carried over, you might see like the one of the best examples or the earliest examples is in the beginning of the game. Ryu is with like his uh, partner, they're hunters basically. And they're getting a, a mission briefing in their little hunter HQ. And then you leave and you progress with the game. Uh, mm, you know, when you, but when you, when you load, like if you have the, the incident happen where you, you max your D ratio or whatever it's called, I, there's like two gauges. I'm sorry if I'm getting it wrong, but when you have to restart your game and load your data, uh, the second time you go through that, you'll see a second cutscene after the fact, like after your characters have left the office, I want to say, I could be misremembering, but it's like your hunter leader guy talking to some shifty person who was hiding in the shadows or something like that about what's going to happen next. So you get these insights as you progress through the game about um, different characters' motivations from different sides that you wouldn't have seen the first time around. So I think that game demands a really unusual kind of mindset and like a high level of patience, but it has some fascinating ideas. And I think it is a prime candidate for re-release on PlayStation 4 a la Rogue Galaxy and Dark Cloud 2 like they've done. All they really need to do is, you know, make that game run in HD. I don't really think they need to... I mean, I guess there's more that goes into an HD remaster, of course, than just, like, make it HD. I'm not a programmer. I don't know what they have to do. But if they could just do the same treatment as they did for something like Dark Cloud 2 with Breath of Fire 5, well, Dragon Quarter, whatever you want to call it, I would love that. I think 5 is just underrated. Criminally. Criminally. Plus, the soundtrack is by Hitoshi Sakimoto of Final Fantasy mm. XII fame. Awesome. And that like, I, ties right into like the underlying sub-theme of today of games where you get a second chance to do better. Yeah, weirdly <laughs> enough. Just stories and that, yeah. Whoa, yeah, stories. I mean, God of War is Kratos' a second chance. Oh, fair enough. In a sense. Ditto. Yeah, ditto. I wasn't, chance. I wasn't aware that Capcom made another game where you hunt dragons at 100 HQ. But yeah, there yeah. we are. <laughs> this is really inspiration. Well, I was going to call this episode Kratos Protect, but he also attacked. Um, <laughs> I might have to change it. We'll see. Well, I think that's going to do it for the show today. So if you have questions, comments, or spare potions, you can email us at podcast at rpgfan.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at rpgfancom and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash rpgfancom. It would be super cool of you to subscribe to us on iTunes or through the RSS feed. Please leave us a cool review, like uh, the Caitlin Defender who logged on, <laughs> as Fenner said last episode. If you want to hear more Caitlin, well, then by God, you've got it. Yeah, somebody uh, reviewed on iTunes, Caitlin, saying that they wanted more of you because you defended Xenoblade 2. Oh, oh. So she's got fans, uh, ladies and gentlemen. So yeah. Xenoblade 2, is it good? Yes. Oh, my God. I'm not okay. doing this right now. Cool. <laughs> it's fine. I bought it, uh, but I haven't played it yet. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it's going to continue getting updated through the year, so. Well, we hope to hear from you guys. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the show. Thanks for listening. For me, Caitlin, Mike, and Greg, we will see you all later. <laughs>